Hey everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. I think I've mentioned it before, but Desperado was not supposed to be our uh, mid-February, early March series. Uh, I had planned on doing a series on the book of Ecclesiastes. We were going to look at Solomon's kind of crazy life. Um, And we had kind of a cool plan, I think, worked out for that. But sometimes God redirects you and pushes you sort of in a a different uh, road. And I was dealing with people coming into my office day after day after day saying, I love this person in my life, but they're really... Um, they're really doing things that are very counterproductive, messing up their own lives, but even more than that, it's, it's cost, costing me. Their bad choices are costing me, and I don't know what to do. I mean, I wanna be a good Christian, I, I wanna show God's love, but I also am like a little confused, like when do you show tough love, and when is the, what is grace? Like, I wanna show God's grace to people, but is that just allowing myself to be walked on? And those questions came up so often, and I found myself Uh, doing what I've done for years, which is to open my Bible to Luke chapter 15. I've used Luke 15 so much in this way, there's actually a little crack along the spine of my Bible in Luke 15 because I've used it so much over the last 11 years to deal with these sorts of questions. And I, I did this for a few weeks and we were sort of getting to the point where we were formalizing what the series was gonna be. And I just could not get away from the feeling that if so many people were walking in my office and asking these questions, that there were probably a lot of people in the room who have the same questions and I just haven't had the opportunity to meet one-on-one with them. And I thought maybe we should just explore this together. So as I was kicking around this idea of what if we spent a whole series in Luke 15 and talked about how do you love somebody when their life is kind of off the rails, I'm listening to the playlist in my car and the Eagles come on my playlist. There's more than one Eagles song on my uh, playlist. And Desperado comes on and I hear those lyrics and I think, wow, this song could have been written about Luke 15. And it sort of begun to take shape. The first week of the series, um, we had a talk called Why Don't They Come to Their Senses? Lyric from the song and we're saying, it's really tough when you're watching somebody make bad choices because you know if they processed it, if they processed it the way you processed it, they wouldn't be doing what they're doing. So that sort of disconnect about how could somebody make that decision, that's tough, right? And then um, the second week, we talked about these things that are pleasing you will hurt you somehow. That, that is a persuasive argument that is tucked within the Desperado song. Hey. I'm trying to tell you this isn't gonna end well. And knowing that something is not gonna end well for the desperado in your life, that's tough. But more than that, just knowing that when you try to make those persuasive arguments, it just doesn't seem to work, like they don't seem to hear you, that can be really tough. Last week we had a talk called The Pain and the Hunger. And we talk about how sometimes some of the most difficult to watch things that that desperado in your life goes through may be the things that actually motivates them to turn around. It's very hard to watch it, but it may be the thing that actually motivates a change. And then this week, our talk is called Let Somebody Love You. As we cycle around to the overarching truth of Luke 15, which is that a desperado can always come home. That in God's economy, the way that God has created our relationship to work, the way he has crafted this relationship through the death of his son on the cross, there is always an opportunity 
to return. What I love about this is that God does not shut the door. There is an opportunity for a desperado to come home. So we're gonna talk a little bit about that. Um, But I wanna do two things in this talk. I have two goals. Ultimately, the goal that I want to land on is I want us to figure out how do we have the same attitude that God has. God, for, for God to want a desperado to come home, for God to care about a desperado coming home and, and to, to seek that out during the time that the desperado is kind of off track, that's, that's a hard mindset to get into. How do we get into that mindset? And then, and then the other goal, which is not quite as important, is I do want to kind of review the high points. Because one of the things that uh, I know from my own life experiences, I'll hear a sermon series and I'll think, wow, this is really applicable to what I'm going through, but I have such a short memory, I will leave that series and then the most important things won't stick with me. So really quickly, I just wanna go over the biggest things. So if you were to pin me down and say, Jonathan, what are the biggest things from this series that I need to remember? I wanna just fly over them really quickly, right? The first thing is the desperado. We, we came up with a, with a definition early on and we said that as a, a person that stubbornly chooses a path that hurts themselves and others. And we said that being stubborn is the defining feature of a desperado. Or the biblical term for a desperado would be a fool. In Proverbs, you read all about the nature of a fool, what a fool does, what the fool is headed for in terms of their future. And that is sort of the biblical term for a desperado. But a fool or a desperado has to be stubborn. If they're not stubborn, then they don't quite fit uh, that model. The stubbornness is what creates a problem because when the, the rest of us are all gonna do rem- remarkably stupid things, right? I could give you a list of remarkably stupid things that I've done, right? That, but the difference is, when I do something stupid, you can talk to me about it. If I'm not a fool, you can confront me, if you confront me lovingly. You, you can, you can <laughs> just saying. Um, <laughs> you can talk to me about it. I can be instructed. I can, I can, I can, carry the uncomfortableness of recognizing that I am not perfect. But a desperado cannot hold the discomfort of realizing that they are not perfect. So when they are confronted, they will either tune you out or they will lash out at you. They'll either snap at you or they will just ignore you, one of those two things, or they'll blame you, but that's just another way of lashing out. So we said that that's kind of the the MO for the desperado, is that they're a person who is going down a bad road. My dad has told me my whole life, Jonathan, you can afford to be right and stubborn. You can afford to be wrong and humble, but you cannot afford to be wrong and stubborn. And a desperado is wrong and stubborn at the same time. So the four principles, we've been, the four weeks, we're dealing with four principles of uh, being in a relationship with a desperado. The first principle is you can't come to their senses for them. We talked about this all week one, that it's, it's, a, it's a desire that we have to get them to draw the same conclusions that we have drawn. If you could understand why it's important that you not do this. So maybe you have a lot of money in the bank and the reason that you are living comfortably is you have set up your mind to think about money in a certain way. You have set up your life a certain way so that you save, that you don't squander money on unimportant things, and you have, do you not, a framework. If you have money in the bank, it's probably because you have a framework for how you handle money. And so if you have somebody that you love very much who cannot hang on to a dime, they squander every bit of money that they get. It is so, it's something we desire so badly to sort of transplant our framework into them. If they could only do this the way that I do this, And so we start to kind of lean on that framework and push it into that person. 
We begin to talk to them about it and pitch it. We make a great sales pitch for our framework. This is how it should be. Why don't you get this? And how often do we do this on Facebook with people we don't even know that we're pushing our framework because if they could just get our framework, they would have the right outcome. And maybe you're right, but you can't come to someone's senses for them. And that's really important too when you have somebody who's being destructive in a relationship because the message in Luke 15 Part of the message in the prodigal son's story is that you cannot keep someone from doing something destructive. There will be moments where you have to take a step back and let them choose the wrong path, even though that means pain down the road for them, but you cannot block the door. You cannot keep them from making that decision. In Luke 15, we have the story of the prodigal son, which is what we've been spending all four weeks in. And just as a review of the story, you have a father and two sons. Now Jesus is telling this story as a teaching metaphor to uh, the, the people that were gathered there. Some of them were sinners and tax collectors, and you'll see that in a minute. So those were the people that he was teaching and ministering to, but actually the story was told for the benefit of the super religious people who were hanging out, who were actually bummed out that Jesus was hanging with sinful people, really aggravated them, that Jesus didn't want to rub shoulders with them so that they could have a party to talk about how religious they are. Instead, Jesus always seemed to be hanging out with people who were sinners, and they did not like that. As a matter of fact, there still is a church culture in the United States of America. I'm thankful that this is the opposite of New Spring, but there is a church culture in America that says all we want in our doors are churchy people. If you're not a churchy person, we don't want you in our building. And you kind of have to sit off by yourself. And if you have tattoos, or if you have long hair, or something that we have traditionally looked at and said, well, that's not a real churchy thing, then you end up being by yourself, and all the churchy people are on another part of the room celebrating how churchy they are. I'm thankful that is not New Spring. By the way, that is not God. That is just a religious thing people have created for themselves. But it goes back to Jesus' time, and Jesus is having to break the Pharisees of this stupid idea that they've gotten into. Jesus is teaching this story. Here's this father. He has two sons. The two sons are going to inherit what the father has eventually when he dies. The older son's going to inherit two-thirds. That's the way that it worked at the time. And actually, as the older son, I totally see the value in that. Two-thirds of the parental estate goes to the older son. I see why that's the spiritual choice. Anyway, the younger son is supposed to get one-third, right? And the younger son has a different spirit than the older son. The older son is working on the farm, doing what is needed to do to, to maintain the, um, to, to do the wise thing, to work the farm, to provide for a life in the future. The younger son does not have that kind of mindset. What he wants is his money now because he has things to do and he doesn't like being at home with the father. So he goes to the father and says, you, you, you're not dying soon enough. I want my money, write the check, let me go. And I told you guys all the way back into week one, I would not let the kid go because the kid is a moron and he's gonna do all kinds of stupid stuff. And yet the father does let him go. Why? Because you can't come to their senses for them. You cannot block the door. The father understood that the son was already in the far off country in his heart. So keeping him in that house wasn't gonna change a thing. Can't come to their senses for them. And that's true in Luke 15 verse 17. When he came to his senses, he here is the son. Ultimately, the story hinges on a moment when the son himself, finally, the light bulb turns on, but you cannot turn the light bulb on for them. It has to turn on for themselves. 
Just a quick fly over the story. I told you the young son says, hey, I want my money. Father gives the son the money. The, the son goes off to what the Bible calls a far off land, squanders the money on, on prostitutes and probably substances. Um, the guy cannot hang on to any money at all. And then because he runs out of money and then there's a famine that hits the land, he has to look for a job. Nobody will give him a job. Last, the, he eventually gets a job with a pig farmer which no self-respecting Jewish individual will work for a pig farmer, but that's all he has. That's his only option at this point. And he's feeding those pigs carob pods. Carob pods have some sweet, almost chocolatey um, uh, seeds in them that if they're prepared right, they can, they can be a sweet substitute in food and been used for a long time that way. And so people would strip out the sweetness out of those pods and leave the slimy, sticky mess that was left over for the pigs Right? And this is what that, that young man is taking out to the pigs. All the sweetness has been stripped out, just like in his life. And he takes those pods to those pigs. And the Bible says he wished he could eat those pods. He wished he would, at this point, he would take the bitter part. Sweet part's gone. But at this point, he would take the bitter part. But nobody will even give him the bitter part. And the Bible says it is at that point when he comes to his senses. And he goes home, and you'll remember that he has a speech worked out. He's going to tell the dad, look, I don't deserve to be your son anymore. Just, just hire me on as a servant, because at least if you hire me on as a servant, I'll have enough food to eat, and you'll take good care of me. And, and as you recall, as he's coming home, the father runs out to the son, embraces him, welcomes him back as a son, has a ring put on his finger and sandals on his feet to symbolize that he's still a member of the family. And later on in the story, we learn that he cannot give the son his inheritance back. That's clear because the father tells the older son, look, I can't give him this back. Everything that I have is yours. And yet there is a celebration and there is not a loss of sonship. So for a desperado, they may not be able to get back what was squandered in the far off country, but there is always the opportunity to come home. And there is always an opportunity to continue to be that son. Principle one, you can't come to their senses form. Principle two, you can't talk a desperado into coming home. We have the impression in our culture that if you make a really good speech, you will change somebody's mind. Can I just set us free from that? In the name of Jesus, you will not change somebody's mind by making a really good speech. In psychology, we have a theory called um, confirmation bias, and it works this way. There are some beliefs that we hold with an open hand, right? So for instance, I work for... Um, Honda years and years ago when I was in the automotive service world and I was a huge Honda fan. Still to this day, I think Honda may be one of the best mechanical values on the road. But you know what? I hold that with an open palm. I don't have a lot invested in that. You want to come and bring me some evidence that proves that I'm not correct? You know, I'll listen to you and I might change my mind. But there are other beliefs that we hold with a closed fist, like that my wife is a good woman. I believe that. I believe that with all my heart. And if you bring me evidence that proves to the contrary, I will reject it. I will ignore it. I won't pay attention to it. And now we know from psychological studies that the pain centers of my brain will actually light up as you bring me evidence that proves that something that I, don't, that, that I believe is not true is true. By the way, that's cons why conservatives want to watch one news outlet. People who are not conservative want to watch another news outlet. None of us want to hear any evidence that what we firmly believe is not true is true. So that's why you're not going to get a desperado to listen to you. They have firmly decided that this is what they're going to do. They have firmly decided that this is what they believe. So the more we push on it, the more we just drive them into what they've already decided to believe. And it's just so much wasted energy. I, I, when I was growing up, uh, I would watch the 90s family sitcoms, you know. Um, and isn't it interesting? If you go back and, and watch them now... There's a phenomenon in it. There's like, there's like a stock plot. In a 90s family sitcom, somebody's doing something stupid. 
someone, you know, and sometimes it's the parents, sometimes it's the kids, whichever. And whoever is, is the, whoever is the smart person in that situation will make a speech. That's, that's about the last five minutes of the sitcom. Somebody will make a speech and then suddenly this truth will settle in over the family and the show will resolve over the last couple minutes. And we have this impression that that's how life works. I'm gonna make the speech, I'm gonna say the right thing and suddenly that person is just gonna go, whoa, that is so right. It doesn't work that way. Some of us are great speech makers, but we lose when we put our energy into that. Proverbs deals with this, Proverbs 26. And some people think this is a biblical contradiction. It's not, and I'll show you why in just a second. Proverbs says this, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Well, I'll give you, it almost seems like a contradiction. Here you say, don't, don't argue with a fool. Here you say, do argue with a fool. But you know what the scripture is saying? You can't win. If you argue with a fool, you lose. If you don't argue with a fool, you lose. Why? Because they've chosen a foolish road. So the, the argument is not the winning spot. That's not, that's not gonna work. I can argue all day long, but if you argue with a fool, you lose. If you don't argue with a fool, you lose. Principle number three, you can bail out your desperado, but you'll only prolong their learning experience. The, and we talked about this last week, that it is so hard. It is, it, is, it is one of the things that will pull on our heartstrings in a, in a minute when somebody that we love has hit rock bottom. And, and it's amazing. I think almost always we are surprised at how low somebody that we love can end up. Like there are certain things that we just don't think would ever happen to somebody that we love. We don't think they would ever go to jail. We don't think they would ever end up... Um, being on a street doing drugs because drugs has taken over their life. We don't, like there are certain things that we just never imagined this could happen and then suddenly it does happen and it blows our mental circuits. And is it not true that it just pulls at your heartstrings and you think, I have to do something. And more than that, as a Christian, we think surely a Christian would have to do something. I cannot let them continue to be in this rock bottom place and still show God's love. I mean, I gotta do something. But we said, last week that sometimes hitting rock bottom is the moment where people finally hear God's voice speaking to them to say, you really need to turn around. And sometimes we interrupt what God is doing when we intervene at the wrong time. Remember last week I said, it's not wrong to intervene. You just have to intervene at the right time. There's a difference between compromise and mercy. So compromise happens when we lessen the consequences of someone's choices before they repent. And remember we said repentance is learning and turning. So before they learn and turn, if I lessen the pain of the consequences, that is compromise. Mercy is lessening the pain of consequences after repentance, after someone learns and turns, lessening that consequence. And by the way, this is part of God's nature. If you look at the Old Testament, it's very clear that God relents when there is a change of heart. But before the change of heart, God doesn't relent. Why? Because there is a lesson that is being learned in that moment. Someone's having to learn the hard way. This is talked about as well in Proverbs, Proverbs 19. Hot-tempered people, and this is just a specific type of desperado, must do what, church? Hot-tempered people must do what? Pay the penalty. If you rescue them once, you will have to do it again. Do you see what I'm saying? The scripture is saying if you, if you hop in there and you interrupt the lesson that the penalty is causing for this hot-tempered person, you will suddenly become the penalty payer. And you'll have to pay the penalty a lot of times because they'll get used to you paying the penalty for them. It becomes a snooze button effect. You know, my, my, when I was growing up, my, my alarm 
the, my, my wife has one of these really sweet alarms now. You know, it plays piano music in the morning. Da, 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 da. When I grew up, my alarm was rude. It went, ah, 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 ah. Sometimes in life, you have a rude wake-up call, right? And what I would always do when I was growing up is I would hit the snooze button, right? But the problem with hitting the snooze button is it's going to come back. Just because you turn off the rude wake-up call right now, it's coming back. And my alarm would get louder every time it went off after you hit the snooze button. And it also reduced the amount of time. So the first time it went off, it would go off after seven minutes, then six minutes, then five minutes, then four minutes. Eventually, you would be slamming the snooze button and it just would not go off. My parents bought that alarm for me. (laughs) But isn't that how life works? We hit that snooze button. There comes a time when we're hitting the snooze button and nothing is happening because now... There's no way to postpone this. That, that is right there in our face. We don't need to be postponing the lesson that somebody can learn. I had this with my, with my knee surgery. I had open knee surgery some years ago. And uh, my knee was not healing as fast as they had projected that it should. And I was getting impatient. So I started trying to bend my knee farther than I was supposed to. And my surgeon read me the riot act. He said, Jonathan, here's the deal. He's like, that tendon needs time to heal. And he said, so here's, here's how this is gonna work. Either you can submit to the process and do this the way that we tell you to do it, or you will pop that tendon and we will have to go back in and redo your surgery all over again. You will, and this is what he said, you will not get the benefit of the pain that you're going through now if you start the process all over again. And that is what we're talking about. Yes, it is painful to hit rock bottom, but there is benefit to that pain if we can learn and turn from it. But if we interrupt, the lesson that God is teaching through that pain, that person is going to have to go all the way back to the start line and go through that pain again. Actually, we cause more pain by intervening in the middle of the lesson that that person is having to learn. Fourth principle, you can and should follow God's lead. Why emphasize that at the end? Because attitude is so important. We tend to think this moment is about what I do for them. They're making bad choices. This moment is about what I do for them or this moment is about what I say to them. It is not about either. It is about your attitude toward them. And if you ever talk to a person who was a desperado and turned around and they tell you about somebody who really made a difference in their life, it will almost always be about the attitude the person that had in their life. It won't be about something miraculous that that person said or something incredible that that person did. It will be about the way that that person treated them. It will be about attitude. Jesus in Luke 15 is teaching, you know, again, he's hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. By the way, tax collectors were so low on the social ladder that they were below sinners. When you talked about sinners, tax collectors had their own bracket below sinners. They didn't even deserve to be put in there with sinners. So they would come to listen to Jesus teach. Pharisees, they complained about that. Why are you, got, why are you hanging out with sinners? So Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what is he gonna do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he joyfully carries it home on his shoulders. And when he arrives, he calls together his friends and neighbors saying, hey, rejoice with me because I found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others that are righteous and haven't strayed away. Okay, that's one story. That's the story of the lost sheep. Now he goes into the story of a lost coin. Suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Now they would understand what this meant. This would be sort of like, um, it, it, this would be sort of like if Jesus was talking about, suppose a woman loses her wedding ring. It would have felt very familiar like that because the 10 silver coins would have been part of a headdress that a woman wore every day of her life. And that was her wedding headdress. So it would be very obvious if one of those coins was missing. 
Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? By the way, lighting a lamp symbolizes that this cannot wait till tomorrow. I will not wait until the sun comes up tomorrow. I will light a lamp and I will spend the whole night looking for this. When she finds it, she'll call her friends and her neighbors and say, rejoice with me because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. So we have three stories. There was the story of the lost sheep, the story of the lost coin, and immediately Jesus tells the story of the lost son that we've spent the last three weeks talking about. There is a difference between these stories. So in these stories, if we look at the the story of the lost sheep, we have a deliberate choice but with no understanding of the consequences. Sheep are stupid. They wander away and they don't realize what that's going to do, right? The story of the lost coin, maybe it was a careless thing that she lost the coin, but it certainly wasn't deliberate. It wasn't something that, that happened on purpose. The lost son, on the other hand, it's deliberate, and this involves recklessly ignoring the consequences. Now, why is this important? Because there's two different responses. For these two stories, the response is a relentless search. So if there's someone in your life, and they've made a deliberate choice to stray away, but they're not quite cognizant yet of the consequences of their behavior, and they're not really playing it through, God is searching for them. There's a relentless search to help them realize the mistake that they've made. If there's a person who's made a careless mistake, but they, they aren't intentionally making mistakes, and they're just kind of lost in the middle of that, there's a relentless search. But on the other hand, when somebody's being deliberate and they're ignoring the consequences, there's a painful wait. Notice it is the only story where there is not a search. The father does not go search for the prodigal as the sheep is searched for and the coin is searched for. Why? Because it was deliberate to go to the far off country. Well, how do we have the attitude that God has with that person? First of all, God's attitude, there's an unwillingness to accept the loss. God does not have a cost of doing business column on his spreadsheet. God does not have throwaway kids. God does not write somebody off. God does not say, this person is just pretty much hopeless, so I'm just going to write that one off. This is in Second Peter. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to do what? To learn and turn. God wants everybody to repent. So there is not a willingness to just write anybody off, and we should not have a willingness to write anybody off either. God never takes a you win some, you lose some attitude, and as the church of Jesus Christ, we should never, ever do that. We should never say you win some, you lose some. There are some people that are just never gonna come to the Lord, and there are other people that are. We're gonna focus our time on people that seem likely to come to the Lord. No, we know at New Spring that our idea of who is likely to come to the Lord is totally bogus. God knows who is on their way to serving him. God knows who's on their way to the recovery uh, to connect with him. So as God's church, we need to be unwilling to write anyone off just as God is unwilling to write anyone off. Secondly, for the truly lost, there is a search that never stops. So if a person really is off the path, but they're not making a deliberate choice to be off the path, they've just gotten really, really lost. You should know that God has never stopped searching for them. And God is always giving new opportunities for that person uh, to come home. And then I want to quickly get to... um, to this story and because um, we have something really cool that I wanna show you in just a second. But I wanna close with this story. Um, this dog right here um, is TJ. He's one of the two dogs that thinks they own our house. <laughs> now TJ uh, is the sweetest people dog you have ever met in your entire life. TJ can tell if you are sick, he can tell if you are sad, 
he is that dog who will make fierce eye contact with you, come up and, and sit in your lap and just love on you. That's the kind of dog that he is. Our youngest daughter has a special connection with TJ. She was so little when we got him that there's just been a, a real bond between them this whole time. So in, this has been a few years ago, we moved. We, we had, we'd owned a house in Derby. We sold that house and we rented for a little while before we bought the house that we live in now. And uh, so we had just moved into this new house. TJ wasn't adjusting very well because he'd never known any other house. He was having kind of a hard time getting adjusted to the house, but you know, that was okay. We didn't have a collar on him at the time because his collar didn't fit properly, but it wasn't a big deal because we had a fenced-in backyard. He's an indoor dog anyway. Um, but one day, the, the gate got left open, and TJ got out, and it was pretty close to dusk when this happened. And um, so we panicked a little bit because, you know, he didn't have a collar, and on top of all that, he's, he, he's not really a, a, a dog who understood the neighborhood I mean, we're, we're thinking about what's going to happen to him. On top of that, he has a bad hip and a bad knee, and we're like, if a car is headed towards him, he's not going to be able to get out of the way in time. So we were really upset. Summer specifically, I remember Summer crying to me saying, he doesn't have a collar, he doesn't have a collar. And as a dad, what do you say to that? I mean, I, don't, I, can't, I can't assure her that everything is going to be okay. My wife is driving all over the neighborhood looking for TJ. I'm running all over the Derby neighborhood that we lived in at the time, screaming at the top of my lung, lungs, TJ. You know, some, some of the neighbors are New Springers. They're looking for TJ, you know. Um, and uh, we come back home because it's getting dark. And we try to kind of explain to Summer that we probably looked all we could look. And, you know, we let the police know that we lost a dog. Maybe they can help us find it. But we're going to have to kind of wrap this up. Summer was unwilling to wrap it up. And as we were having that conversation, this little brown mop starts running up from the little pond where the ducks were, which is apparently where TJ had gone, up, up to us. And we had the relief that you feel when something that was lost isn't lost anymore. And summer especially, it was a special moment for her. I, I wanna, when we talk about the attitude that God has, the third thing is we have to understand there is a relief beyond words when a lost person comes home. Sometimes we worry about how will God feel about me after all the things that I've done when I come home to him. The truth is we know from scripture there is relief beyond words and there's a huge party. I wanna show you one other picture. This is uh, TJ and Summer. This is not that night, but this is also not staged. This is just something my wife snapped because this is legitimately the two of them. This is how they are. When you see this picture, you feel this peace of everything being right with the world. So when I come home to the Lord, there is a peace that comes from this is what's supposed to be. When I'm connected to God like this, there is that peace in our heart and mind. And the thing is, God is not looking to slap anybody on the wrist for their past. God is wanting the peace that comes from things being back right like they should be. And we should not give up on that. If we wanna have the attitude that God has, we should say we should never give up on the peace that could happen if this person does if and when they do come home. There's a, a lady who I respect tremendously. Her name is um, Miriam, who her husband had an addiction to crack cocaine. God helped him get through that addiction and on the other side, and his, her husband ended up ministering to churches all over the world, sang here at New Spring Church because he was a singer uh, until God called him home from a battle with cancer. Um, I would have loved to have had Calvin tell you his story um, but uh, because Calvin's at home with the Lord, I had an opportunity to interview Miriam um, through the internet. And uh, I want you to take a minute and hear what Miriam has to say about what her Desperado experience was like. 
So I am joined right now by Miriam Hunt. Uh, and Miriam's husband, Calvin, uh, has been to our church before, has come out and uh, sung for us, ministered to us. It's been some years ago uh, because Calvin had this immense voice, immense testimony. Um, God did amazing things through him. He's uh, with the Lord now. Um, but he had an, a, an incredible story. And so I reached out to his wife, Miriam. I said, hey, could we talk about this? Because as we've been talking about what it's like to love a desperado, um, Miriam, she knows about it firsthand. Like she's lived it, she's been there. And so um, I just, first of all, Miriam, thank you so much for being willing to hop into this weekend with us as we're having this weekend service to hop into this, uh, this moment. Maybe I know that, that there was in the beginning this huge um, hope that you had for this relationship because you'd had some rough times. And when you first got together, it was like me and Calvin, this is gonna be awesome. But then it didn't really, it didn't really turn out that way, at least not in the beginning. You're right, Jonathan. It was uh, night and shiny armor comes into my life. You know, everything was so wonderful. Uh, you know, I, I was suffering a divorce and a very painful place. And, you know, here he comes and God just, I knew it was God. You know, here he comes. But um, unfortunately, through the months or the years, um, he began to change. And um, I tell you one thing especially for those who are not married um, and are trying to blend a family and and then suddenly you're saying, let's make this right before God, which is what Calvin and I did. Um, here comes the enemy to fight you because now you're doing something for the Lord, you know? And so that was my life. And, uh, and my side of the testimony was that no matter what, I was not gonna lose this marriage like I did the first one, you know? And so, besides that, Calvin was such a swell guy. I mean, out of this world. Mm -hmm. But he was not walking with the God that I met. And so my husband is suddenly hooked by crack cocaine, meeting all the wrong friends. And, um, and um, here I was now, returning to the Lord in the church and seeking the God that I know that did the same thing for me, you know? And I said, if he did it for me and he did it for so many others, he can do it for Calvin Hunt. And so I began to seek the Lord in prayer and really believe for him. And um, trust me, there were times that I almost wanted to give up. But you know, I held on to, to Jesus. I held on to his hand and said, God, you gotta do this. And I just strongly believe more and more. With all the pain, I was still saying, God, do this, you know. It's almost like uh, we're desperate. We're, we're, we're holding out to his hand. We're saying, you can do this. He's telling us, no, you can do this. <laughs> you know, and so I held on to the Lord and began to pray. I prayed this um, supernatural prayer because when you are desperate, when you really need the Lord, I tell you, our prayers are so much different. Mm -hmm. And my prayers were so deep and so near it was like he was right there with me, you know? Mm -hmm. And so even through my pain, I was having that hope and that faith and I knew I had a friend with me and I'm gonna get through this, you know? And so, you know, this I even share with you to encourage those who may not or may be going through this and may not believe it, he is able. And those were my words one day. And I begged the Lord in that sense, in that, desperate place, I would say to him and cry out, God, 
where is Calvin? And I said, God, you can go after him. God, send the Holy Spirit after him. God, speak to him. God, wherever he's at, God, use people. Use things. Use a, a, a bad buy. <laughs> you know, a bad hit. Yeah, you he, you actually prayed that, yeah. that, that he wouldn't. I remember him saying that uh-huh. you prayed for him that the drugs wouldn't have the kind of effect he was looking for. And he said he felt that, that he really felt that it wasn't what he expected from it. And he really felt like your prayers impacted that. And that was the power of prayer because the Lord was doing that. You know, we, we have to remember. And the thing is this, he would come back and tell me that. <laughs> and it, sometimes I would pray him right into the house, mm. to my home. And he would knock on the door and I would say, come in, it's open. Never did I lock the door on Calvin Hunt. And finally, after all these days and all these years of praying for this husband of mine, we prayed him into a prayer meeting. It was about 40 people. I know we have bigger churches today, but it was about 40 people in a small church. And we began to pray Mm. for Calvin Hunt. And I'm going to tell you, Brooklyn Tabernacle, big. Yes. Praying also. Praying also. Because remember, we came out of Brooklyn Tabernacle to a smaller church Mm -hmm. that Pastor Stimbler had, um, was over. Mm -hmm. And so, here comes our prayers to the Lord. And it was simply, we we were not even praying the word of God. We were praying our hearts. God, go after Calvin. Mm. Calvin, hear the voice of Jesus. Calvin, Mm. Jesus, Calvin, Jesus. And that man walked in. Mm. That young man, Calvin Hunt, walked into a prayer service. The usher downstairs states, and still, I still remember he said to me that Calvin said, where is my wife? Mm. And he said, Calvin, are you all right? And Calvin said, yes, but where is my wife? He said, she's upstairs in the prayer room. Mm. Calvin walked up the steps about two flights, came into the sanctuary, down the aisle where a bride would walk. He walked down that aisle, filthy, dirty, guys. Mm. I will never forget, dirty. Filthy. I could see from the corner of my eye, somebody's coming down there. When he finally hit to the front of that service, that um, altar, where the congregation was praying, praying for him, pulled it. God pulled him out of the streets or wherever he was, brought him right into the sanctuary, mm. and he got there. and And the pastor said, and I said to the pastor, "Here, he, pastor, he's here." And pastor said, "And here he is." Mm. <laughs> It was just so amazing. But the church, we blew up like a, we were in a baseball field saying, yeah, you know, rooting. We rooted. God did it that night. He brought him in out of the streets and he gave what him. Was that, what was that like for you? Because I can't <laughs> imagine, like, I mean, how, what does it do to a wife's heart when you, when you watch him walk in there and you realize that you've been praying as hard as you've ever prayed before and he walks into that room? Like, what was it like in your heart when that happened? And honestly, Jonathan, I was so relieved. It's like mm. the weight that I had on me. Mm. It's like I had the weight of the world on me. They know I lifted, suddenly lifted. And I, even myself, I was in awe, Mm. but at the same time, so happy. I said, God, you did it, you know? And I could cry and say, God, you did it. 
that's what it was to me. It was just real but unreal. <laughs> you know, it's like, wow, Lord, here you are showing yourself once again. And if you ever heard Calvin sing, you knew he had something real special. Cal Calvin had, I still, uh, my mind, I, I think of the images of Calvin singing. One of my favorite concerts for Brooklyn Tabernacle was a concert called We Come Rejoicing. And uh, I, I think about Calvin singing this song. Uh, he sang the song, I'm Clean, all, all over the world. But if you watch the video, uh, and you can, you can get online. I think it's on YouTube. You watch the video of him singing and we come rejoicing, right? I have always had the impression that when Calvin sang the song, he's singing to this large room, you know, and yet it almost is like it's a, it's a, a, a very intimate moment because it's almost like this is a message between Calvin and God that this is what, this is where I'm at. I have a past. I have a history, I have issues, and yet when God looks at me, he sees me for who I have the capacity to be, and, and he sees the end game. And speaking of that song, DJ Breathitt's getting ready to get up and sing that song here at New Spring, uh, I'm Clean. Uh, Calvin's with the Lord, elsewise we would have figured out how to get him to Wichita to, to sing the song. <laughs> For right. this week. I been right there with him too. <laughs> uh, we, exactly. What do you think that song meant to Calvin? And, and if, if Calvin were with us today, what would he want us to know about the song that we're getting ready to hear? Yeah. Well, you know, Calvin, um, I have to share this, this part first. He learned that song because somebody handed me a tape one day. We don't know what tapes are today. Hello. But that tape had that song in it and I would play it in my house whether he liked it or not. <laughs> and little did I know, he was going in and he was staying. Mm. He adapted that song. He desired that, okay? Mm. Now we go to the, back, to the church and we become, you know, just volunteer people. We wanted to be so close to God. So we knew that only in the church, we thought that's where we could be close to God. My husband, clean the toilets mm. in the church. And while he cleaned those toilets, he sang that song behind mm. that door in the men's room. And my pastor's wife came running. She's looking around. She goes, where is that coming from? Even as I'm telling you, Jonathan, my hairs are standing. And she says, where is that coming from? Who's singing? And she opened, she dared to open the men's room and see my husband holding on to the, you know, the urinal, cleaning it and singing to the top of his lungs. Mm -hmm. I'm clean, I'm clean, I've been washed in the blood. And he was believing that already. And once you begin to sing like that, you begin to believe it, you were walking. God promised, he said it, he promised us that we believe in him, we begin to obey him. He will bless us. And he was blessed, Calvin. And from there, my pastor's wife, Maria Durso, took him out of there and said, sing that again. So she wanted him to sing it to the staff. And he sang it. And she looked at me. She goes, he's clean. And I went to her. Not yet. <laughs> because the wife knows, right? Right. And so a couple of months more, 
he went in away into a beautiful program and he went there and came out and he sang that song like you're gonna hear our dear brother sing it even now once again thanks for listening if you live in wichita the surrounding area we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services for directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.